0: Hello and welcome to another episode of The Aces for Human, the podcast that centers on the human in HIV. Each episode brings you content on the human side of research, health, well-being and community. The Aces for Human is sponsored by the legacy project of the Office of HIV AIDS Network Coordination, Hank. My name is Pedro Goicochea and I will be your host today. Every year, from mid-September to mid-October, we celebrate the Hispanic Heritage Month, in recognition of the contribution of this community to the land that they have inhabited for more than 500 years. On October 15, we observed the National Latinx AIDS Awareness Day, a day to help address the disproportionate impact of HIV on the Hispanic-Latinx communities. Hispanic and Latinx individuals account for 19% of the U.S. population and are the second-fastest growing ethnic group in the country. Census Bureau projections predict that this group will account for 28% of the country's population by 2060, emphasizing how important it is to address the HIV incidence among Hispanic and Latinx individuals who accounted for 29% of the new HIV diagnosis in 2019. To discuss this, we have invited four experts that will be sharing their experiences and perspectives on how we can address these and other issues related to the impact of the HIV epidemic in the Hispanic and Latinx communities. Let's start with a round of introductions. Luis, could you introduce yourself and the HVTN?
1: My name is Lewis Shackelford. I am an External Relations Project Manager at the HIV Vaccine Trials Network, also known as the HVTN. Jean, can you
0: introduce yourself, please?
2: My name is Jean Hernandez. I'm the Latinx Program Coordinator for Alabama Latino AIDS Coalition in Birmingham, Alabama, and our organization is named AIDS Alabama.
0: Pedro.
3: My name is Pedro Coronado. I work at the Valley AIDS Council Westbrook Clinic. I am the Deputy Chief of Organizational Development.
0: And last but not least, who is Daniel Castellanos? Hi, I'm the Director
4: of Research and Innovation at the Latino Commission on AIDS.
0: What do Hispanic Heritage Month and the National Latinx AIDS Awareness Day mean to you and your organizations? And while answering this question, can you also explain the reason? to use the term Latinx?
2: Ah, it just means pride. It means celebration. Let know people that we are here. We love you guys, but we also celebrate our heritage, celebrate our language, celebrate our traditions, celebrate who we are, celebrate mom and dad, celebrate our food, our culture, and that's important. It's important because identity is something that people think when they come to USA they need to lose. And no, on the contrary, that's what it keeps us together as a community. And it's something that you should be proud of. And it's something that we should be teaching but also sharing with the community at large. And I think once you have the importance of celebrating diversity, you are celebrating inclusion, and you're celebrating who you are not only as a person, but as a communities of color that we needed to be celebrated to reach that equality that we want. And once it hits Hispanic Heritage Month, we always decorate because visibility matters. And we (laughs) take that opportunity to erase invisibility and create awareness and solidarity and diversity. And we have the Alabama Latino AIDS Coalition that we provide supportive services for Latinos, Latinas, Hispanic, Latinas, whoever wants to address who they are. I always said, let them people express how they want to be called, right? It's open for people living with HIV here in Alabama, the loved ones, their partners. We have two support groups and two programs one is Somos Nosotros. It's been since 2013, so we're going to be 10 years now, next year, and we meet monthly, do a lot of education, we do retreats. It's been
4: a blessing. We started with the National Latino AIDS Awareness Day, and that was one of the first efforts. One of the things is about increasing awareness of the issue. It's one of the first steps in addressing our health needs, and is to ensuring that those issues remain salient, that those issues remain at the forefront of our concerns. And it's also a a, a way of organizing communities, it's a way of bringing together people who have been working all year long and to celebrate our efforts, to have a time in which we join together to ensure that the community has the tools and the resources to address those issues. So, uh, something that started at the local level in New York City is now the national level. So again, to summarize, it's about increasing awareness and at the same time, it's also about joining efforts. It's about celebrating our work that we do throughout the whole year. I think it's important that we talk about Latinx and it's important that we talk about Latine. Even if we like it so much. We need to remember that it came out of the north and there is a difference between the north and the south. So because when we talk about Latinx, for instance, we saddle the Rio Grande, it might be a different story. And we need to be mindful that we don't assume that a new label is 100% encompassing of all the different life experiences. So I don't have a particular desire for a particular label. I think it's more about the audience that I'm talking with and the goal that I want to achieve. So sometimes the word Hispanic is very powerful, even though it might be an older term, but it is powerful. Sometimes Latinx is
0: powerful. And Pedro, what do these two mean to you and your organization?
3: We do represent 18% of the US population, but we still account for a little bit over 24% of HIV cases here in the country. So we're still disproportionately affected by HIV, and we're still one of the highest minorities that is going to be diagnosed not only with HIV, but also with an AIDS, stage 3 HIV, or also AIDS diagnosis um, when they are diagnosed with HIV. So late access to care, obviously the social determinants of health that affect us getting proper health care services. So that's why it's very important, at least for us as in Latinx communities, that there is a light that's shined into what our needs are. Us being here on the U.S.-Mexico border in Texas, when it comes to National Hispanic Heritage Month, everything down here reflects Hispanic, Latinx communities. Working really close with our sister cities right across the border, we do take pride in everything that the Hispanic community has contributed to our border communities, it's really important that we highlight those some of those achievements when we're talking about the national HIV AIDS awareness for Latinx individuals, that we still have people here who are from the community working for the community. And I think that is something very special when it comes to not only living here, but also working here in our border towns. So on top of that, at a national level, we have been the organizers of the National Latinx Conference since 2015 taking it on the road now we're gonna be in new orleans next year so people ask do i have to be latinx in order to go to this conference and we're like no this is for anybody that's working with the latinx community so for example the community health workers we invite them to this conference to be part of it this is also a medical conference right so we invite clinicians anybody that provides a service to people that have hiv or may be at risk of acquiring hiv maybe more vulnerable to it, we invite them to be able to learn not only from experts that are presenting, but also just from the peers that are there at the conference, from how to prescribe medications for HIV to how to address the social determinants of health to keep people healthy and safe. So when we say Latinx, it just comes down to respect. People will come back to me and say, we're changing our language and who is this really for? Depending on where I'm at, the term Latinx, Latino or Latina can be used uh, in different situations. This, it's more to make sure that I am being respectful to my transgender brothers and sisters. So it's for them, the people who are not always looked out after, not always considered, I'm a cisgender male, so for me, if you use Latino or Latinx, I'm okay with it, but I want to make sure that I'm being respectful to our, and even our gender non-binary individuals. We want to make sure we're being respectful to them. So it's not about being disrespectful to the language, it's just about being respectful to the people who keep being marginalized and are always left in the silence. <laughs> so that's my reason.
1: Lois. <laughs> Latinx populations are some of the fastest growing populations in the United States. Latinx individuals make up around one in five American individuals. And we also know that un- unfortunately, Latinx individuals make up over 20% of new HIV infections. So we're not going to get to the place where we make a significant impact in the HIV epidemic without Latinx, Hispanic populations. And so this is really a case where no one can be left behind if we're going to have an impact on curbing and hopefully ending the HIV epidemic. So it's of crucial importance that as a research network that's developing a new biomedical intervention to prevent HIV, that being a vaccine to prevent HIV, that we incorporate all the populations that are disproportionately impacted by HIV. It's my belief that we're not just gonna get to the end by focusing on the end result and getting the vaccine, but we need to make sure that all the people who are disproportionately impacted, all the people that have been, for lack of a better term, victimized by HIV, by all these years, that if they're not involved, we need to have them involved. It's important that as we develop a vaccine, that we think about all the communities that can benefit in making sure that they're all represented in the research process. So that means from the very beginning of the process, when protocols are being developed and drafted, to the end of the process, when we talk about study data dissemination, it's really important that we at the HVTN, really acknowledge all the different facets that make Latinx communities unique and really tailoring our community engagement approaches to meet the needs of the community. So, one of the initiatives that I'm leading right now is the formation of a Hispanic coalition, which is basically bringing together multiple Hispanic serving organizations from across the country to focus on developing educational tools and webinars and initiatives to educate communities and make them aware about research and address other health disparities affecting Hispanic populations across the United States.
0: As a side note, the Merriam-Webster included the term Latinx on the dictionary in 2018. So, changing gears a little bit. What are the challenges of addressing the HIV epidemic in the Hispanic and Latinx populations in the United States?
2: In the South, there is a lot of barriers and it's because it's systematic. It's not something that is just, oh no, that only happened to that guy, that only happened to that girl, that happened to... It's something that is systematic and it's something that it will take a lot of us to create change to create awareness and advocate for change. But once I came here in 2011, HV56 was the immigration law that was enacted, and people were scared, people were discriminated, and the law was so bad that even if you look like I can stop you in the car or walking by, or if you're going to... Registrate your kids at school, you have to say if you're documented or not. People were scared, people getting out of Alabama. And the immigration barrier, the discrimination, it was that bad that affected access to healthcare. People were not going to the appointments. They were afraid to drive to the appointments. They were police policing and patrolling in front of the neighborhood that are mostly Latinos, I understood that policies that are enacted are the ones that are going to keep people oppressed. And then I realized that access to healthcare, it was one of the greatest barriers here. After HB56, a lot of clinics and hospitals, they begin to deny people charity care. So for example, if I'm uninsured and I have to have a surgery, emergency surgery, that could be thousands, that could be 40,000, 50,000, depends how much time you are in the hospital. And you can apply for charity care. And after that, they were denied just on base of immigration. Language access is so important and language justice. There was one of my clients, choose, sick. And she told me, if I get very sick, can you go with me? Of course. So we met at the hospital. I filled all the paperwork. And when we get there, the nurse was there. And I said, I'm going to interpret. She's low proficiency in English. Let me know. And she was mad. And she's like, I want to speak with her. She would not understand, but I'm here. So she said, okay, ask her that. How, How many years she's been living in the USA? We are in the hospital. She's... She was super sick. And I asked her, okay, she wants to know how many years you've been here. And she says around six. Okay. In six years, you have not learned to English yet. Really? That was the welcome. So I realized that language access, it was a stigmatized. So for me, I took that example as a staple of, we need to do this better. And advocate for language access. It's not it's not the responsibility of a kid, of a sister, of a brother to interpret for someone when you go into the hospital. It's the law. And once you begin to put that in the perspective, then people realize for our basic rights, we keep advocating for language access and for even compassion. Alabama is a tough place. People are in the mindset that if you don't like it, go. They have told me a lot of time, you can go. If you don't like it, if you don't like USA, you can go where you come from. I can, don't know how many times they tell me that. And I say the same thing. You know what? I'm going to say what I don't like because I want it to be better you don't get it where I come from. And with that kind of thinking, we're going to be divided. And we are part of this community and we're equal just as you are. And so the access to healthcare, the the policies enacted that discriminate against immigrants and the access to healthcare politics also play a role in this. You asked me if you see an increase of Latinos in Alabama, yes. And because of that, there's going to be more people voting. And when there's more people voting, there's going to be more changes. We're going to see more communities. And hopefully when we got people that are from our community, be the representatives and be, there's going to be some changes. So I'm very hopeful. I always said, I like to talk about barriers, but it's important also to talk about what we're going to do about it and build bridges. Don't burn them. Sometimes i burn up some few, <laughs> but I, try, I always try to build more bridges because, at the end, that's what we led to the next generation.
0: Pedro, what do you think are the major barriers to address the HIV epidemic in the Hispanic and Latinx communities?
3: It's stigma. Stigma still, and I'm pretty sure much around with any community, right? But at least with the Latinx community because of our culture. Then on top of that, taboo subjects that we just don't discuss than just stigma behind it. We don't talk about these things. We don't talk about it until it actually happens. So it's it's already too late. So unfortunately, those are some of the things that keep affecting the Latinx community. If we're trying to end the HIV epidemic, we have a great framework when it comes to testing people, getting them into care, providing PrEP services. But when you talk about some of these pillars, right, to end the HIV epidemic, it can be pretty difficult for our community because We can't get people to get tested because of the stigma behind it or we can't get people to access hiv medical care because besides the stigma maybe the access to health insurance might not be available getting the proper documentation needed to access care might not be as easy to get and then even with prep just the whole concept that some people may have living in texas sometimes accessing prep services for some communities might not be so easy especially brown and black individuals to where now, even with our health insurance, it's being questioned to where should our employers be providing us with access to prep, and with the first case being here in Texas due to religious rights? So all of those things compiled and like on, on top of one or the other, it makes it pretty difficult but at the same time, not to mistake that as we've given up, right? We keep fighting to make sure and to address some of these issues.
0: Daniel. What are the major challenges to addressing the HIV epidemic in the Latinx community from your perspective?
4: I think that one of the main issues is how we have been conceptualizing the HIV epidemic in the Latino community. I think often we assume that it's a new phenomenon, that we suddenly found out that HIV incidence among young Uh, Latino and black gay men was something new, but we have known that for a long time. And I think one of the issues then is how we address those factors that from the early 80s started impacting Latino communities. So we often keep perceiving the HIV epidemic as in a particular way that silences the impact of HIV on Latino communities. From the beginning of the epidemic in New York City, you have the South Bronx and you have Harlem being impacted greatly. One of the challenges have been how we reframe an epidemic in terms of uh, the larger structural and socioeconomic factors impacting the Latino communities. So it's no surprise then that the same challenges that impacted substance users in the South Bronx in the early 80s is impacting people in New York City, for instance, in terms of COVID 19 or in terms of monkeypox. So I think something that remains constant is that big challenge of, of those structural factors that preclude people from accessing services. Or even when the services are there, hinder the utilization of existing services. And so I, I don't I don't think that it is a particular challenge to HIV in the sense of those structural factors. We, we have known them for a long time. Homelessness, mental illness, substance abuse, all these issues that we have known. Poverty, lack of eligibility of healthcare for immigrants. So I think in, 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 the, the specific about HIV is the overlapping with sexual health and, and sexual orientation. That is very unique. And when you're talking about the stigma, when you're talking about discrimination does affect specifically to the issue of HIV. Similarly, I think when we think about the challenges of the, talking about addressing HIV in the Latino communities, one issue is that we still look at sexual health in a very medicalized manner. And we barely touch on the issue of sexual desire and in you know, positive sexual lives, so That, I think, is a major in addressing HIV. Um, But what I wanted to say is that as we silo HIV within its unique phenomenon, but we forget that it's in in a larger social fabric that creates vulnerability for certain, certain groups, and then you add those cultural and social views on sexuality on sexual pleasure on same-sex desire so that compounds
0: the impact thank you for accepting the invitation to the for human and for sharing your experiences and perspective on these different issues and the impact of hiv on the latinx and hispanic population But before we finish this conversation, do you have any final remarks? Why don't we start with you, Tokayo?
3: Well, whoever's listening, if you yourself are Latinx, get tested or getting care. If you know somebody who's Latinx, let them know about some of these events that are happening throughout the country. And also not only about HIV, but just about, um, you know, do a quick search about what have we done to our contributions to this country as Hispanic and Latinx individuals to take some pride in in that.
0: Ying, any final comments?
3: Yeah, celebrate who you are. Do it
2: with orgullo, with pride. Um, It's important that the work that we're doing, it matters. It matters not only what we're doing, but what we are Um, celebrating in a small way, in a big way creating visibility to the communities to our brothers or sisters or they or them that are around us is important so take the opportunity to in your work office to social media to celebrate who you are is that important
0: daniel
4: i think in terms of hiv my main concern is that we continue the medicalization of hiv and while it's very important that we have these advances, and it is very important that we develop new ways of protecting ourselves through medical means. We need to remember that any of these infections, whether it's HIV, monkeypox, or hepatitis C, happen in the, in the context of a relationship, happen in the context of a community. And sometimes we need to remember that those conversations about sexual health and sexual pleasure cannot be put aside through a medical intervention. They need to happen. They need still to happen. And we need to rescue those early attempts of the nineties in the gay, the gay movement to expand the idea of sexual health to more than STIs. I think we, we did a good job at expanding somewhat those conversations, but I think we are still very reluctant to have deeper conversations about what sexual health is in in the issue of just physical encounter. I think you remember in New York City, debate recently about uh, prescribing certain protocols for gay men and forgetting that we are having sex in the context of friendships and social networks and sexual mores. Sexual desire cannot be prescribed. Uh, It has to be engaged. Rather than prescribe. And I think we need to learn more about those 90s, way before medical interventions, way before you equal you. Gay men were already selecting who they were having sex with and choosing, making decisions based on undetectable viral load, way before you equal you. So I think we need to go back and have engaged. People in conversations about sexual desire and sexual pleasure.
1: And Luis? I think my biggest remark would be that it's our goal to really celebrate communities. I feel like with these Awareness Days, be it focused on Latin communities or Black communities or Native communities, sometimes we get caught up in the weeds. And I say we as in terms of big institutions especially medical institutions that serve these communities. We get caught up in the disparities, the issues, so to speak, that affects these communities. And part of my work, I want us to really focus on celebrating these communities in terms of the life, the joy, the vibrance that exists within these communities. We're more than just health disparities. We're more than just research subjects. were more than just numbers on a new infections list. These are vibrant communities. These are neighbors. These are brothers. These are sisters. These are siblings. These are partners. And we need to respect them as such and give them a proper place at the table and always hear their voice because these are the people that need us the most.
0: Thank you all, and rest assured that this will not be the last time you are invited to The Ages for Human. We still have too much to discuss, but thanks again. And to our audience, please stay tuned for another episode of The Ages for Human. Do not forget to subscribe and share this podcast with your acquaintances, colleagues, friends, and family. And with me, it will be until next time in a new episode of The Ages for Human the podcast that centers on the human in HIV.